0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA.
1: Good afternoon and welcome along. Very shortly, you're off to Muse to take a look at some cutting edge scanning equipment. It's been installed at the Yard in the lead-up to the launch of a new national traceability system for sheep and goats. And a little later in the hour, too, back at Michais. Uh No, not Mouche Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market and then Danny Burkett along to look at this week's wool market. First up today, though, Australia has processed a record number of lambs in 2023, almost 25 million lambs were through the meatworks last year, smashing the previous record that was set in 2016 by almost... 2 million head. Here in WA, close to 3 million lambs were processed last year, second only to the numbers that went through in 2016. Stephen Bignall from Meat and Livestock Australia has been going through the latest data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Steve, is that national lamb slaughter figure larger than you expected?
2: Yeah, it is. We we had um, our our forecast had the lamb slaughter sort, of sort of in more sitting more in line with the previous record, and and um, this year just the, the sheer size of the flock and the lamb cohort, and then obviously people making decisions on when to sell. There's been a bit of a change in, in timings of sales. Um, has has led to that extra two million of lambs being processed.
1: So the previous record was back in 2016. Is that right?
2: Yes, and, and uh, it- back then it was. Just shy of
1: $23 Okay. So what are the similarities between, you know, way back then in 2016 and today? Is there any kind of similarities you can draw from those two periods of time?
2: One of the big, the big driver behind it, there's obviously a myriad of of reasons, but the big driver is just the supply and how big the uh, lamb cohort is. So 2016, across most parts of Australia, was also a favourable seasonal condition, had really good lambing conditions and, and a, a growing flock then as we do now and that's what's um, led to these record uh, lamb sort of numbers.
1: And I, I guess the the point is that the processors were able to find that extra capacity by almost 2 million head to be processed in this
2: country. Yes, yeah, so small, small stock um, processors definitely were able to find capacity when the new supply sort of flushed through the system.
1: And how do those numbers per head, so the 24.9 million lambs that went through the system last year, how does that translate to meat production?
2: So from a meat production perspective, we also set a new record. So from a meat production perspective, we processed 599,000 tonnes of lamb meat in Australia last year, which is a, a new record. Interestingly, the previous record was actually set last year because obviously lamb rates are getting heavier. We can actually produce more from less, but you get more meat from each um, lamb. And so um, we set a new record in 2023 in terms of lamb production, and and that was 12% higher than we achieved in 2022, which was the previous record.
1: And the majority of that, does that go to the export market?
2: Historically, around the sort of stat that's run around is around 60%. So um, 60% of lamb meat in Australia is exported, nearly 100% of mutton. Um, But so when we as as a country produce um, record levels of lamb meat, it means that there's actually more available in the domestic market and also in the the global market. And from a perspective is we've actually added an extra 100,000 tonnes of lamb meat to the global lamb pool which equates to around 20% in the last two years.
1: Well, let's break it down state by state. How many lambs were processed here in Western Australia in
2: 2023? So in WA, it was 2.97, so nearly 3 million lambs, and that was the second highest uh, lamb slaughter on record in WA. Uh, The only year where there was more was in 2016.
1: Okay, there's that year again. So there's that, that that similarity nationally and also at a state level, for well, for Western Australia anyway. How does that compare to other states then? If we look at the WA figures in terms of lamb's process to what happened in other states?
2: Yep. So in New South Wales, there was 5.7 million and Victoria was 13 million. So most of the lamb processing, um, over half of it, is does occur in Victoria and, and we saw that trend. Continue last year, where thirteen point two million sorry uh, lambs were processed in Victoria.
1: And sorry, how what was the WA figure again? Uh, three, three million head. That's right. Okay, and how does that translate to the tons of meat produced from those lambs in WA?
2: Uh, so, from a tons of meat uh, produced in WA, WA hit a record. So again, like um, like in Australia, lamb meat production was a record last year. Um, WA produced. thousand tonnes of lamb meat and that was 3% more than the previous record in 2016.
1: So another record-breaking figure in terms of the amount of lamb meat produced in this state.
2: Yep. Uh, so 3% more than that 2016 figure and 10% compared to 2022. So, again, that means that there's more WA lamb available in the WA market and being exported from WA.
1: So what's really driving that? Because here in Western Australia, you know, dry conditions, um, there was, you know, the uncertainty that still exists today, I guess, with the future of the live sheep trade by sea still in question and, and waiting for a phase-out plan. And the pro- producers were basically lining up at the abattoirs and had huge wait times to try and get in. And that record probably would have been a bit higher if they'd been able to get in as many lambs as they really wanted to. So what's driving the lambs to slaughter in other states? Is it a similar story to what we've seen here in WA? Uh,
2: very, much a sim- very much a similar story. I think the interesting piece you um, mentioned is, is um, I think, seeing it sort of all become clearer now with the efficient figures is when you see just how much extra how many extra lambs we processed that would obviously lead to supply chain bottlenecks we've got never had more lambs going through processing plants so it does make sense uh, of those anecdotes we were hearing last year of, of people struggling to get into processes but from a national holistic view the, the drivers are the same we just had a bigger lamb cohort nationally they're sort of talk that we're at the capacity of where the flock can go. So from 2020 to 2022 as we went through sort of the national flock rebuild and we reached that that flock of close to 70 million which is the largest in, in 15 years in that period of rebuild people really invested in genetics and so what it has meant is that um, we've got a far more fertile uh, breeding flock um, and there also has been a change from wool breeds to, to meat breeds which means that we actually get more lambs out of the breeding flock, which means that we actually may see elevated lambs slaughter going forward because it's a structural change.
1: Let's take a look at the mutton figures too while we have you here today, Stephen. How much mutton was processed in 2023 nationally?
2: Nationally, mutton, we process 9.7 million um, sheep, adult sheep nationally. That was the highest figure since 2014.
1: And in Western Australia?
2: We processed 1.9 million, which was the highest in 15 years. We have to go back to 2008 to get a higher mutton slaughter.
1: And then, what about the values if we take a look at that? Because there have been, you know, especially last year and things have improved a little bit this year, but we certainly saw a huge dip in prices across all livestock lines, really. So, I imagine that'll be reflected in the values as far as what producers were paid for their lambs and mutton in 2023.
2: Yeah, so the ABS collects the amount that processors pay producers for their livestock at an aggregated level. And in 2023 calendar year, the Australian sheep and lamb industry were paid $4.2 billion for their um, slaughter ready stock. In 2022, that was 5.3. So we did see a slight drop of about $800 million over the last two calendar years.
1: Right. So that's not a surprise, is it?
2: that does even though production went up in terms of the volume the record volumes we're talking about the price drop um obviously impacted that and and that's what's led to that lower value uh, or the lower aggregate value being paid from processors to producers
1: all right and then the early figures for this year for 2024 what are they indicating at this very early stage about what might be processed in 2024
2: Yep, so M- MLI get uh, voluntary NLRS slaughter figures from processors nationally. And, and for the week ending uh, February the 9th, so uh, two weeks ago, over 503,000 lambs were processed in the country, which is an all-time record. And and if we were to keep that run rate throughout the year, that would be a, a slaughter of 26 million head.
1: And can we handle that? Can the processors handle that?
2: We, we don't know. That's... That's if that one week continues. We we may see this drop off in the back end of the year as the twenty twenty four Lamb cohort comes to market and, and so we, we, we probably expect that figure to fall. It wouldn't get to twenty six million. But what we can tell is that we are at the moment in the first from January and February outperforming that record that we achieved in, in twenty twenty three.
1: Stephen, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Bell. Stephen Bignall from Meat and Livestock Australia. And that headline figure is that Australia processed a record number of lambs last year. Almost 25 million lambs went through the meat works last year, smashing the 2016 record by... Almost 2 million heads. Similar story here in WA. 3 million lambs processed last year, second only to the numbers that went through in 2016. It's a quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour. Off to the Mushae Salyard now, where some cutting-edge scanning equipment has been installed in the lead-up to next year's launch of a national traceability system for sheep and goats. From January the first, 2025, all sheep and goats require an electronic ID tag when leaving the property or when they reach six months of age, whichever one comes first. It's a system that's been in place for cattle since 2005 and it's a way of improving traceability practices for a more efficient management of disease outbreaks, food safety issues and also market access. But across the country there's still a lot of confusion and and a lot of questions about the rollout, the technology itself, the cost and the efficiency of the system. Stephen Bolt is a farmer from Corrigan, 223 kilometres east of Perth. Stephen, have you seen this new scanner?
3: Uh, yeah, I have taken an opportunity to, uh, to go to Miche, have a look at the scanning setup that has been put in place just for, uh, I think, a trial period. So out of the five or so drafts that are available, they've just set up scanners on, on one of those drafting operations. There is a reduction in, in that ability to where we normally have four drafts, uh, a reduction back to three drafts on, on that drafting um, setup.
1: So what do you make of it at this point?
3: Yeah, look, I think for a producer point of view, there is certainly a lot of confusion a lot of questions that haven't been answered about the rollout of this scheme. I think we've seen as far as national harmonisation, there's some issues there between all of the states agreeing to a standardised model. And you know, we've seen wool producers withdraw their support for the for the scheme at this stage. I think that shows that there's certainly some some issues, I think out of Queensland, concern about the level of funding that that is going to be directed to that state. So I think when we're so close to this being rolled out and there's such a significant change to our traceability system, um, there is a lot of questions that need to be answered going forward.
1: So what are your key concerns?
3: From grower point of view, there's, there's that cost, but primarily it's about making sure that we've got a traceability system that has to equal the current mob-based system that we operate out of Western Australia. So I, I'm yet to see you know, I'd like to see that demonstrated to us where this increase in traceability will come from because WA does have an incredibly efficient system at tracing our, our livestock. Uh, I think from growers, they'd like to see some more in- information about why we're being pushed down this path with further costs being added to our our industry and our enterprise.
1: Is it a cutting edge technology, or do you think, you know, with technology sort of developing so quickly these days, is the system as technologically advanced as it could be, or is there something better out there that maybe the industry could wait for?
3: Ah, uh, look, I'm no technology expert, but you know, from what I've, from people I've spoken to, this is certainly is old technology, and there is more advanced technology in this space, so. You know, are we investing into a system that is in some ways, you know, becoming redundant? Is there high-frequency technology that will deliver better traceability outcomes? And and I think that comes down to the efficiency of sheep going through yards. So recently I was in, you know, export yards watching sheep loaded for live export vessel. And when you start seeing the volumes of sheep that are, are need to be scanned in such a short period of time, I really have concern about the ability of, of this traceability system to be able to identify all of those animals without really slowing the process up.
1: And have you purchased some of these tags which are available now and and what do you think of what you've seen so far?
3: Uh, yeah look like a lot of growers I think there was an investment made by a lot of people at marking last year to uh, with the implementation coming to to start tagging. Uh, lambs. I think, you know, we've we've seen over a period of time some concern about the performance of some of these tags. So out of, you know, some growers in, in that Victoria where they've had the scheme in place for a, a lot longer than us, just having reliability of, of, of scanning of those sheep. So we're seeing some poor results as far as read rate with growers, you know, reporting up to 10% in first 12 months of tags not scanning
1: Stephen, good to talk to you and i know i've interrupted a a meeting you're at over in sydney at the moment but the real reason you're there is because you're a number one swifty fan is that right
3: uh i I certainly was on the plane with quite a lot of swifty fans uh, mothers and daughters yesterday on the way across to sydney but uh Certainly won't see me alongside Mr Albanese uh, at Taylor Swift uh, over the next couple of nights.
1: So was everyone on board the plane singing along? Were you enjoying that, belting out some Uh, tunes?
3: Certainly headphones
1: were on pretty early for me. (laughs) It's great to talk to you, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thanks, Belinda. Oh, he's a Swifty from way back. Stephen Bolt, a farmer from Corrigan, with his thoughts on the new EID system for sheep and goats. A little later in the hour, you are going to find out about the extremes some people are actually going to to get to that Taylor Swift concert uh, from here in Western Australia, pastoral station here in WA and one in Queensland uh, flooded in but still going to get there no matter what. We'll get to that after the news headlines at half past 12 today. 22 past 12. And I'm wondering if the head of Excites Digital, a bit like Stephen Bolt, thinks WA's new electronic ID tag system for sheep and goats is already out of date and old-fashioned. Excites is a Perth-based company that's developed high-tech tags that are now being used in the pig industry. CEO and founder Steve Wilderson says they can be used for traceability but also for overall health and wellbeing management.
4: Look, we actually have developed a sensor system... That is sits between a normal ear tag and the animal's ear. Uh, predominantly, we've been working on the pork industry, but uh, there will be opportunities in the future to work outside of pork and into beef and, and sheep. But the real difference is we're not RFID, which is scanning at a particular point with an RFID scanner, which is a particular piece of equipment or specific piece of equipment. What we offer is a a real-time broadcasting product that is actually being able to be viewed by any. Bluetooth-enabled products. So it could be a mobile phone, it could be a tablet, it could be a computer, or we can use specific gateways that we put across uh, a farm. And what can it measure? So as opposed to just looking at unique identification, um, we look at complete health. So we take data sets from an animal being the temperature and movement patterns. Um, We can look at its location near a feeder or watering station. We can look at over a scale and and take uh, and, and build out uh, daily weight gain for an animal as well. We bring that into our system and build out a profile for every animal, and then we cross-reference that against other animals to provide real-time data on the health and well-being of each animal within a herd. So let's say I'm a pork
5: producer. Let's say I'm a very big pork producer here in Western Australia. You've you've got the interest of the Craig Moston Group. Why are they so keen on it?
4: Look, Craig Moston Group's been a great partner, and they've also cornerstoned uh, the development of the product. But look, it's, it's important for all groups to look at different types of technology to have better performance through their farms. Animal health and well-being is, is critical. They love their animals. It's a big part of their business. And the health is actually what gives a better quality product to the, to the consumer as well. So uh, if we can improve efficiencies, uh, reduce illness and mortality, it's, it's a big part of their business. And uh, we're, we're working with them closely to make that as efficient as possible.
5: Is it right that if you're simply measuring something, let's say the temperature, are you able to get on top of some health issues even before they arise? Is that the, the, the line of thinking?
4: We're looking at the data continuously so we can actually see outliers getting sick as opposed to being sick, um, which is a very different way of farming. So rather than being reactive, you can be predictive. Um, and the data is now showing uh, animals becoming unwell around about 48 hours before any physical symptoms are being shown.
5: Is another benefit the fact that in the old system, prior to having something like this, if one animal went down and if you identified what the problem was, you'd be applying medication to the whole herd, to the, to the whole pen?
4: Uh, that can definitely be the case. Um, when you're looking at reactive farming, it's, it's a very different beast to predictive. Uh, predictive means we can isolate before it becomes a problem. Uh, as opposed to reactive, which may mean that we need to mass medicate. So there have been markets, especially in Europe now, where antibiotics is being removed from the system, Um, and I'm sure that'll start to happen in in other markets around the world as well. Um, So, you know, we're in a strong position to offer different solutions.
5: And if you flip it back around the other way, if you're looking at traceability, let's say something is identified. This sounds like you've, you've got data that's not reliant on pen and paper. You, you, when you're talking about it tracks the movements of the animal, how, how does it do that?
4: Yeah, so we, we see animals move from room to room, room to paddock, room to vehicles, vehicle to sail yard, vehicle to abattoir. Um, and we can capture the whole process. And the Real difference is we are looking at the animal every second of the day so we, we don't miss a beat.
5: So, imagine if that was mandatory across WA and you're talking about the cattle industry when there are scares going on with things like African swine fever or foot and mouth, the authorities would be, they'd love to have a system like that.
4: Yeah, well, African swine fever is probably more pork related than, than beef, but uh, 100%. You're, um, yeah, again, being in a, at the forefront. And getting ahead of the problem rather than reacting to an outbreak is a a much better way of uh, of dealing with these things.
5: What's the potential for this sort of technology?
4: Um, It's enormous. Uh, Look, we are also getting a lot of support as a result of it. So we're now taking our business uh, out of Australia into Southeast Asia. Uh, We've got a lot of interest through China. And we're getting calls in both Germany and, and America as well. So pretty exciting times for the business ahead.
5: Well, when we talk about the Craig Mostyn Group being quite big in WA, they're small compared to some of the pork producers in the rest of the world, aren't they? Uh,
4: they are, but they're, I mean, they're a big operation in West Australia. Uh, I think they process around about 90% of West Australia's pork, and I think it's circa about 12% of the Australian, or 12 to 15% of the Australian uh, market, but... Um, you know, when you're looking at some of the operations in, in Thailand, uh, these they single operations are seven times bigger than the Australian market uh, from single operators. So, they're, yeah, they're, there's, there's a lot of pork that's consumed through, through Asia.
5: I would imagine after what China went through with African swine fever, they'd be pretty keen on this sort of technology as well, wouldn't they?
4: Again, we're, we're very excited about that opportunity to work with them for that exact reason. So we're fortunate enough not to have ever seen African swine fever in Australia, mm-hmm. We, we assume at this point in time that we will be able to see it. It's how early we can see it. And we've just engaged uh, a new chief veterinary officer uh, who is uh, part of the, the plan to solve those problems.
5: Do you think the potential for this is limited to the intensive livestock industry? I mean, you, you're talking about it being with pigs that are in enclosures. How easy would it be to extend it out to vast properties, to sheep farms and to cattle stations? How close do the animals need to be to have the tags read properly and appropriately?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, that is one of our limitations. Uh, As we become better at what we do, there'll be more and more readers in different locations, so you'll be able to get visibility at certain areas over the farm. A little different from the current models that we're looking at the animal every second of the day, but you will have the ability to... uh, Uh, see them as they come up to watering stations. Dairy industry should be able to see them as they're coming in and out of the the, the milking stations, which is critical. And then feedlot is definitely our our wheelhouse at this point in time. So once you start going extreme pastoral, it becomes a a slightly harder product for us to work with. Um, But no different to an RFID tag at that point in time. We still broadcast, we still are red when we're red. um, Which is kind of no different to what you would have to experience with an RFID tag at this point.
5: Do you think it's only something that's going to be available to the big companies who are well-resourced with the big money? I'm just thinking of your classic small or middle-sized farmer listening to this going, well, that's something I could never get involved in.
4: Look, it's, it's definitely designed for bigger farms at this point in time, but that will change over as we grow as a company and the demand becomes slightly different. However, the pricing structure is set up as a sensing as a service, so you're no longer paying for the tag; you're paying for the data that you receive. Um, it's effective at about 2.8 cents a day per animal. Um, sorry, that's US cents, but that's that's kind of the the backstory of the business. Different amounts of data will change the pricing structure, so. Yeah we're trying to be as cost effective as we can for uh, across the species.
1: Steve Wilderson he's the CEO and co-founder of Excites Digital a Perth based company that was started in 2018 but it's only has been in Agritech for about three years. He was speaking to Richard Hudson. Time for an update from the newsroom with Jonathan Beale.
0: Thanks, Belinda. A New South Wales police officer has been charged with the murders of missing couple Jesse Baird and Luke Davies. The 28-year-old officer handed himself into police at Bondi today, but police are yet to locate the bodies of the two men. Police have confirmed they found a police firearm that had been discharged along with a white van allegedly used to transport the Bodies Rain has started falling in Exmouth as ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln tracks closer. Residents have spent days preparing for the storm which is forecast to reform into a cyclone later today and cross the coast tomorrow as Category 2. And authorities have escorted a convoy of nearly 400 trucks through a bushfire zone along WA's main freight route with the eastern states. A 370 kilometer stretch of air highway between Norseman and Kaiguna was closed on Wednesday afternoon as bushfires jumped the road near Balladonia. The highway is expected to be closed until at least tomorrow. morning news, Belinda, at one.
1: Jonathan, thank you for that update, 29 to 1.
0: You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA.
1: And still to come between now and the news at one, two, market wraps for you. Uh, Mount Barker Cattle Market from... Uh, yesterday, Tracy Kilner's going to go through that for you, and then Danny Burkett along. He's going to take a look at the wool markets at sales at the east and also here in the west. First off to the Bureau of Meteorology to catch up with Luke Huntington this afternoon. And Luke, about an hour or so ago, the Bureau issued tropical cyclone advice number no. thirteen for the system that's currently in Western Australia. So, what is the latest on ex tropical cyclone Lincoln?
6: Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. So uh, currently, the ex-tropical cyclone is around 370 kilometres northwest of Karratha. Um It is moving towards the west-southwest or southwest, heading towards the northwest Cape. Um, but it's moving pretty quick, around 24 kilometres per hour. Um, we do ex- still expect it to become a cyclone, sort of later uh, tonight, um, and it, it looks like it's going to pass close to the northwest Cape, there, just to the west of X uh, during Saturday morning as a Category Two system. Um, that means that we could have winds up to 130 kilometres per hour near the centre there, but that at the moment those type of winds are, are sort of offshore from the Exmouth coast. Um, and then it's going to continue to move southwards towards Carnarvon uh, later on Saturday. Um, there is a possibility it could co- cross as a Category 2 cyclone um, on that sort of far northwest Gascoigne coast, but um, it's also possible it could weaken to a Category 1 just before uh, crossing that coast. So a bit of uncertainty there, but um, Category 1 does have wind speeds around. 110 kilometres an hour so um, it's still quite quite damaging even if you do get those winds so it's, a, it's very um, it's very important that people still keep up to date with all the warnings and then after it crosses the coast um, it looks like it's going to head over sort of the inland gas going to, or it could even brush the uh, the adjacent central west district there on the sunday
1: Now, so many from, well, the north of the state right through to the south coast looking for some rain out of this system. What do you expect for sort of northern and eastern parts out of the system, Luke?
6: Yeah, so it looks like it's going to. Well, the heaviest falls are going to be uh, depend on where the actual system goes. So, um, in terms of um, where it where it crosses the coast, um, how far west or east it does go. So, um, yeah, sort of sort of the western Gascoyne is looking those forty to eighty millimetres, isolated one hundred and sixty millimetres on the Saturday period, and then as it heads into the uh, the southern Gascoyne and into the Central West District, um, that's where we're probably going to see the most heaviest falls uh, for the Southwest Land Division on on the Sunday. So um, probably in the Central West District, it's more likely going to be the northern and eastern parts. Uh, but they could see uh, falls around that sort of um, forty to eighty millimetres, um, isolated up to one hundred and fifty millimetres. So quite um, a significant rainfall, even f- even for those guys there. And a lot of that rainfall could sh- um, happen in a short period of time because it is moving pretty quick. Um, Um, So there could be some, um, well, erosion um, for for farmers, like the topsoil being eroded with those type of... uh, that rainfall falling in a short period of time. So that may be a concern uh, for the farmers out there on that Sunday period. Um, Further south, um, into the the, uh, southern wheat belt, into the Great Southern Esperance area, we're still expecting a rain band over the weekend, um, but probably lighter falls for those guys. Um, The rainfall is probably going to fall a lot more steady over that area. So on the Saturday, by the end of Saturday, you could get five to 10 millimetres over a large portion of the southern and southwest land division. So through the um, southern wheat belt, northeast, great southern, through the Esperance area. And then on Sunday, um, we'll probably get the heaviest totals moving through there. So um, right throughout the central wheat belt, we could be getting um, 20 to 40 millimetres, isolated 60. So, and, and 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 probably the heaviest falls will be the northwestern wheat belt. Um, again, depending on where that... Um, potential cyclone or low at that stage will, will go. Um, and then it'll sort of weaken out as it moves through through the wheat belt there. So still a little bit of uncertainty, how much rainfall and which areas, as I said, it would depend on that path.
1: All right. And seen as we're in the Southwest Land Division now, any other detail, because we've kind of jumped ahead to Sunday and looking at the rainfall, but anything else you can fill us in on between now and into the new week?
6: Yeah, so... Um Sort of on Monday, uh, after the rain band sort of dissipates, um, it's going to be we're still going to have um, some maybe some light showers and thunderstorms around uh, through the inland parts of the southwest land division. Um, We could even get some remaining showers just over the sort of the Albany and Esperance coast as well, but um, those showers are not going to be particularly heavy, so we're only expecting um, less than five millimetres over that area. And then as we head into Tuesday, uh, most of the shower activity should be gone. We're just left in, in an onshore flow. So any showers um, should be confined to uh, the far southern southwest land division and on, only light falls are expected.
1: Thank you so much, Luke. Appreciate that. It is 23 to 1 and Richard Hudson in the studio now taking a look at the rainfall figures. Yeah, and there's hardly any in the last 24 hours up until 9am. Quite unusual in the Kimberley, Troughton
5: Island had 21 and then the next highest for the whole state was Yampi Sound with 2. But it sounds like there's a fair bit more on the way. Due to the cyclone situation though and the risk of fire in that part of the uh, the state, a total fire ban has been issued for the Ashburton, Exmouth and Karratha Shires. So the normal routine, you can't do anything that could start a fire and there's more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban on the Emergency WA website and you can also see which shires have a total fire ban in place. But Edwina uh, Shellcross is at uh, Bullara Station, which is about... 85 kilometres south of Exmouth. Edwina, I'm sure you've been listening closely to the forecasts. Are you nervous?
7: Well, look, Richard, we're fairly prepared in terms of um, cyclone prep. We've just been packing everything down this morning and yesterday afternoon. Um, But, yeah, it's not looking like a big, big system. So, obviously, like all the pastoralists in the area, we're really looking forward to hopefully getting some rain.
5: It's not a five, but even a cat two can cause some damage, can't it, though?
7: Yeah, I suppose if you're right underneath the system, there's always um, a risk of um, damage. But, um, yeah, we've certainly seen some bigger blows um, historically here. So category one or two won't be too bad.
5: You've got cattle and also a tourist operation. What's taken up most of your time yesterday and today?
7: Oh, well, I suppose mainly just securing all the infrastructure around the um, homestead, Richard, all the tourist buildings. Um, we're pretty diligent with our cyclone prep every season, anyway. Um, but yeah, so I think that's mainly just um, infrastructure is probably our biggest concern.
5: Have you got any tourists on site at the moment?
7: No, we've closed for the summer. So there's just about, six, I think there's six of us here now. So um, just a skeleton crew.
5: Like a lot of stations, you probably don't want the wind so much, but you, I'd imagine you do want the rain.
7: Oh, yes. Look, everyone, I think, in the whole of the state has been watching this activity and, yeah, we're all pretty desperate. So, um, yeah, just hope that um, there is some decent rainfall wherever it goes and um, I've left the washing on the line just in case, hoping that might bring a bit of
5: water our way. It definitely will. <laughs> when you say you're in need of a drink, how serious is it?
7: Uh, we've had 140 mils for like the last 12 months, so it's it's pretty dire. Yeah, so obviously we need decent rainfall to make a difference, but um, it's just anything will be a good start.
5: How many head of cattle do you have there at the moment and, and how are they faring?
7: Uh, yeah, look, I think we've got about 1,600 breeders. Um, a lot of the cattle we've destocked quite heavily and, of course, just with the dry, you know, you have to intensify your... Um, supplements so lots of lick feeds and hay drops so um, yeah that's just a daily a daily job now so um, yeah I'm sure the cattle will be very happy if the weather gods are in our favour.
5: Well firstly stay safe and hopefully it doesn't cause too much damage and I do hope it brings the rain you need.
7: Yeah thanks Richard and good luck to all the other farmers that desperately need it as well. Hopefully it comes
1: comes our way. Edwina Shellcross from Bulara Station which is about 85 kilometres south of Exmouth and she was speaking to Richard Hudson.
5: Yeah and a few cyclones have actually gone straight over Bulara Bell. In March 1999, Cyclone Vance had some record mainland wind speeds of around 267 kilometres per hour recorded just near the station and then in March 2015, Severe tropical cyclone Olwyn was a direct hit. It was the most significant cyclone to affect the Gascoyne coast in decades. And at Ballara, they had damaged to buildings and a windmill bent in half, cattle washed out to sea in a tidal surge. And Edwina was saying they're still actually finding debris in the bush that was blown all over the place by Olwyn. So he's hoping the same doesn't happen with
1: Lincoln. No, and it certainly sounds like there's going to be quite a decent rainfall out of it too. Richard, you'll be kept busy on Monday's Country Hour by the sounds of things with those figures. I'll be out of here. (laughs) Oh, you will too. Yeah, you're off the hook. Uh, It is 19 to 1 here on the Country Hour and a bushfire watch and act is still in place for Balladonia, So that's 220 kilometres east of Norseman. And because of that fire, the air highway is still closed between Norseman and Kaiguna. It's the main arterial route from Western Australia to South Australia. So hundreds of trucks hauling freight and livestock have been held up. But late last night, a convoy under emergency services escort did manage to get through and head east. And then this morning, another convoy was escorted west before the highway was closed again. Phil Hay is the DFES incident controller and says safety is always their number one priority.
2: Yeah, look, we we managed to get one last night. We put 380 trucks through last night with both ends. Yeah, it was, it was Matthew. We had one line of about six and a half kilometres of trucks that we're escorting through, so you can imagine it was a bit of a logistical challenge. This morning's one has started, so they've left Kaiguna at five and as well as at Norseman at five, and we literally have the first set of trucks coming, being escorted through from the east through the fire zone as we speak.
6: What is your message to the truckies who are maybe in Norseman, or yesterday I went out to Coolgardie um, and, and spoke to some of the truckies there. What are your messages, What is your message to them at this point in time?
2: Look, just be patient, you know, understand that Look, we're putting their safety as our number one priority, you know, unfortunately history has shown us that, you know, events can be quite tragic, we don't want that to occur, that's why we take this stance and we start to be patient with us, and also once they get through the roadblocks and we do release them, just be a little bit cautious, you know, you measured six kilometres of trucks travelling in a convoy, you know, we don't want anybody doing anything silly, we want them to get to their journey safe.
1: Phil Hay, the DFES Incident Controller, speaking to Ivo De Silva. Two road trains carrying livestock were in that convoy heading east last night. Two more road trains were loaded at Salmon Gums this morning, ready for the next escorted convoy, and we're not sure when that's going to happen. And as you heard yesterday, six Salmon Gums farms have been used to hold sheep that were on those trucks destined for eastern states' markets. The sheep have been stretching their legs on the farms. It was um, a bit of a novelty for some of the farmers in that area who got out of the sheep game a few years ago, but some sheep back on their properties as a result uh, of the situation in that area at the moment, 16 to 1. We'll get to the market shortly, a look at the cattle sale at Mount Barker and then a look at the wool market for this week. But first, when you have tickets to the hottest show in the country – Nothing is going to stop you from getting to the concert, not even a flood. From one side of Australia to the other, some Taylor Swift fans are doing whatever it takes to see their pop idol perform at her last Australian concerts in Sydney this weekend. Bridget Herman has the story.
8: When Queensland's wet season threatened to derail Maddie Hall's chance to see pop star Taylor Swift perform in Sydney, she needed a getaway car, and fast.
9: Um, so we've been rained in for the past five weeks, and so this morning I had to get in a little R-22 mustering helicopter with no doors and fly into town to get on my Rex plane. So it has no doors, and it's two-seater chopper with your leg room I had my handbag under the seat my duffel bag with my feet on top of it so I was a bit scared I was gonna like maybe fall out even though I knew I wouldn't just because it was a bit awkward but yeah there's not a lot of room in them.
8: She's a governess working on a station 70 kilometers out of Normanton in the Gulf of Carpentaria. She knew all too well that being so remote might mean getting creative when it came time to head to the show.
9: It's always been a possibility, but it was always, we might be able to drive, we might be able to drive, and then on Monday it was like, you're probably going to have to fly. So at the moment, the river over the bridge to town is three metres above the road. Um, and the other bridges the other way to town are also well underwater. Um, And just road, like the water washes the roads out, now driveway floods over, things like that. Yeah, just flood water. Um, We've had a lot of rain being wet season and also rain in other places that runs down and brings floods with it. And it's making for a round
8: trip of more than 5,000 kilometres.
9: So I've gone from the station to Normanton to Cairns to Sydney and then my way back is Sydney, Mount Isa, Doomagie, Mornington Island, Normanton station.
8: She isn't the only Swifty who's using a helicopter to reach the concert. On the other side of the country in Western Australia, Maddie staff lives on a station in the Kimberley near the Northern Territory. Her summer was looking cruel when she also found herself flooded in.
10: Unfortunately, ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln had some other ideas and dropped over 200 mils in a night, basically, and completely flooded us in. Like, the river that we're next to came right up to the back of the house, the chicken coop, the dogs. Being wet season and where we are, there's plenty of companies around that do offer charter services. However, I've got some very good friends and made a few calls around and shout out to Kayla for actually getting me onto uh, this pilot who happened to be based just up the road from us, who was able to ferry me out that day. A typical 22, we strapped my son into a baby carrier and then he's yeah obviously legally allowed to fly on my lap with another belt. So we strapped him in and uh, did what we could and no doors through some pretty interesting weather.
8: It's been a journey to see the singer, but these fans are ready to be enchanted.
10: Swifties go to some extreme lengths to get to, get to Taylor Swift and um, it's, it's going to be a fearless night, hopefully.
1: Oh, it's going to be worth it. Maddie staff finishing that story, 12 minutes to one. Now, have you ever noticed how the size of eggs change from one season to the next? In summer, they're a little smaller and then in winter, they get a little bigger. Jan Harwood is from Margaret River Free Range Eggs and she says her hens have certainly been feeling the extreme heat just like we all have over the last few weeks or so. She says temperature is a key factor with productivity and animal welfare. In
11: summer, although we can control the temperature somewhat in an open system like Free Range, uh, it is limited. But still in summer they get hot and tend to eat less, a bit like us. And it's mainly this eating less that affects their egg size. There's also a factor that if they get heat stress, which is when they start to pant, like most animals, there's a whole lot of chemical processes that are going on in their body and that will affect their egg production as well. So in summer, you can expect to see smaller eggs in the supermarket and less larger eggs. And it's a reverse in winter. Uh, The hens will eat more, just like we tend to, Uh, but instead of putting weight on their hips, they put it on in the eggs. The past few days, Jan, in the Margaret River region,
10: you've had quite a few days above, say, 35 degrees, and then there's not really been much of a reprieve during the night. What does that mean for your hens?
11: It's unpleasant for them, as it is for anyone these last few days. Uh, The nights, if they doesn't cool down during the night, they don't get that reprieve with the coolness that we we generally get in Margaret River with with a nice breeze. And we have to be very careful that the hens don't get wet with the cooling system because if they get wet uh, and their feathers start to clump, they don't get that body heat exchange they definitely go outside less. Does it mean that the hens slow down their lay? Generally speaking, in a commercial setup, we're always fighting against the elements, uh, light, heat, etc. But in summer, there's a little bit of a, a fight back with the natural elements and the heat. But generally speaking, the hens are genetically primed to keep laying once they've started. So... They will keep laying. So it's not going to affect the amount of eggs that we're seeing on our supermarket shelves? No, it will not affect the number of eggs you see on the shelves. Now, having said that, sometimes in extreme heat in the flocks that are north of the city sometimes the temperatures are difficult to control and hens can even um, die or go off the lay so there may be some losses and you may see that in a drop in egg supply. Uh, You said that so during
10: summer eggs are smaller, winter eggs are larger. Do supermarkets pay you less because of the size of the egg that your hens are producing?
11: Not deliberately because eggs are always sold by weight and the supermarkets, we've organised contracts, so we get paid per weight of egg, to say. So in summer, yes, we would get paid a little bit less because overall our eggs would be a little bit smaller and the reverse a little bit in summer. But the supply isn't generally affected unless you get extremes of heat.
10: So there's going to be no change in price for what I'm paying at the checkout?
11: Well, not in regards to the heat and the temperature and and seasonality. Uh, That doesn't usually in eggs affect
1: uh, the price at the shelf. Jan Harwood, she's from Margaret River Free Range Eggs and she was speaking to Kate Forrester. Obviously Jan's talking from a commercial production perspective but she does say if you have some chickens in your backyard and the weather is very hot, then you need to make sure your hens have cool water to drink and some sort of cooling system and she suggests maybe some hessian over the hen house and you water that to keep it cool, a bit like an old Coolgardie safe. But she says don't wet your hens because the hen's feathers will start matting together and stop the body being able to get rid of excess heat. And Jan also gives her hens electrolytes during the really hot days of summer. So you could do that or add some bicarb soda in the water so they can beat the heat that way. Seven minutes to one. We'll get to the market shortly, to the cattle market at Mount Barker and the wool market details. First, though, you would have heard in the news that there've been some bushfires in Victoria's west. Uh, Rural reporter Angus Verley is at Beaufort. Angus, how serious are these fires?
12: G'day, Val. They are quite serious, really, in terms of scale and impacts. I think on the scale side of things, about 14,000 hectares is the the latest estimate from the authorities, and and that's burning right across, well, through plenty of uh, bushland, but also a lot of sheep country. So around the farming around Beaufort is predominantly sheep production. So a lot of sheep farms have been partially or entirely burnt out. There have been reports of some stock losses, other properties as well. We visited a, a tree nursery this morning. He he's had a significant amount of damage at his place. Uh, We've heard as well from vineyards that have been damaged and the fire is still burning.
1: And have you had a chance to talk to any of the farmers affected?
12: We have, we have. Oh yeah, we've we've spoken to people, uh, people who've lost shearing sheds and of course tens and hundreds of kilometres of fencing have gone up in smoke and and pasture as well. So there's already talk about coordinating of, of hay drops to get fodder into these farmers who've got sheep that need to be fed and no longer have any pastures to feed them
1: and how are the conditions looking over the weekend
12: uh, so yesterday was a shocker day that that sparked these fires very hot very windy today the heat's gone but we've still got the wind so that's what's causing the problems at the moment that wind change over the night changed the direction of the fire we've still got those high winds so what people need now are some benign conditions to, to get on top of these fires
1: Angus, thank you for that update, appreciate that. Angus Verley, he's a rural reporter checking in from Victoria's West at Beaufort uh, where some farms have been affected by those fires. Five to one. To the markets and the Mount Barker cattle sale was all weaners this week with a yarding of 1,059. That is down 637 on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner, how was the yarding today?
13: A lesser quality yarding offered saw most categories trend down except for heavyweight steers gaining 10 cents with feeder buyers chasing these weights. The lightweight calves in all categories eased with competition absent from the eastern states restocker buyers due to the closure of the air highway. Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 150 to 300 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos made from 272 to 316 cents. Lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos sold from 192 to 290 cents and weights under 280 kilos returned 196 to 268 cents a kilo. a heifers man. weighing over 380 kilos made 150 cents. Weights from 330 to 380 kilos sold from 140 to 222 cents. Lighter weights between 280 okay, and 330 kilos sold from more 120 more. to 196 cents and weights so under 280 returned 110. To two hundred and two cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service.
1: Tracy, thank you for going through those details at the Mount Barker cattle market today. Now to the wool market. Not a great deal of movement. In the wool market this week, the Eastern market indicator was unchanged at one thousand one hundred and fifty-seven cents a kilogram clean, and the Western market indicator was down nine cents to finish the week on one thousand two hundred and eighty-four cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, can you run through the details?
14: You're just remembering those uh, micron. Those indicators are a combination of micron price guides that are a combination of different wool types. And the only type in Fremantle that actually dragged that indicator back this week was the 18 micron fleece group. I'll go through that in a minute. Uh, 17 micron, 1740, fully firm for the week. 18 micron and 18 and a half, they've quoted minus 25. But interestingly, when you look at against the Melbourne market, we're sitting 20 cents clean behind. And if you look at the Sydney market, we are 30 cents clean behind on that type. I would suggest. Uh, There weren't too many straight types to get a firm quote on those microns. 19 micron firm in Fremantle, $14 flat on the close. 20 microns, at 13.30 firm for the week. 21s, 13.25 firm for the week. 22s, 12.90 were also firm for the week. So across the board in the fleece wools, only that 18 micron group that's slightly cheaper for the week. But as I said, we're just struggling probably to get a reasonable wool to quote. Pieces and bellies, uh, fine ends, mediums, high VM, low VM, minus 10 to 15. If you look at the lambs wool, a true lambs, a short lambs, very few on the market to offer. The longer wiener types, very sound in the market as they have been trading now for probably two months. Locks for the first time in five weeks. Minus five, or in the old terms, buyer's favour for the week, cutting stains off five for the week. If you put all the wool types uh, sold across the Fremantle floor this week regarding style, regarding breed, micron, etc., put them in a cocktail shaker and mix them up, $1,505 was the average for all the wool traded over the floor in Fremantle this week.
1: And who was on the buyer's list this week, Danny? So, again, no
14: changes to that list. Tech will trading taking 20% of the fleece wool, Morris 14.5%, Endeavour will exports 12.5%, TNU 10. But if we look at tech Wool trading just in that fleece uh, trading through the week, I'd suggest they had over $6 million in capital roughly to trade that amount of wool. Worth noting, tech Wool trading second largest buyer in the crossbreds, largest buyer in the skirting, second largest buyer in the oddments. And if you looked across all of those wools purchased or traded by tech Wool this week, roughly $10 million. And considering we only traded 41 for the entire sale through the three centres this week, one quarter or 25%, depending on your generation, which way you look at that, um, that amount of wool by one company. So a lot of capital out by one company in the market at the
1: moment. And next week, what have we got?
14: Next week, I would suggest, is a mirror of this week. There's just over 40,000 bars being offered at Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle. If you look at Fremantle, 8,300 bars. That is a very good volume for us. It keeps us under that 10,000 mark, which is good for those in buyers that come in and buy at market. Also gives a little for a trader to move and take a position as well. So hopefully next week we'll have a firm to at
1: market. Tony, thank you so much. It is news time, one o'clock.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.